Here's Mariana. Good morning. Happy New Year. I'm excited about this particular year. I don't know why yet. I'll let you know when I find out. Um, I'm Mariana, or if you can pronounce it Mariana, like Randy does so wonderfully. You can call me that too. I've also been known to answer to hey you and a few other things. I want, I want to start today with a little survey. I'm going to paint a picture, and I just want to hear your reactions. And it's not a quiz. There's no right or wrong answers. I just want to know what comes to your mind. Imagine that you've turned on the television, and there is someone who calls himself an evangelist. At least that's what the little caption, is, caption says, evangelist. John Doe, speaking. Now, maybe he's speaking at a church. Maybe he's speaking from a TV studio. Or maybe he's out on a corner in the middle of some protest and a news crew is filming him. Here's my question. What is the gist of his message? In just a few words, what's he saying in your mind as you picture this? Anybody? You're going to die and go to hell? I've heard that one. You need Jesus? We need money. We need money. And God will bless you. Yes, I've heard that one too. I'm not saying any of those are wrong, but what else? God loves you. I think that's my favorite. Repent or else back to the, you're going to hell. Yeah. Well, the, the word gospel literally means good news. I'm not really sure why they translate it that way. I think it goes back to an old English word. Um, But it means good news. The word evangelist comes from the word gospel, someone who proclaims good news. Some of what you heard was good news, and some of it didn't sound so great. I want you to keep that in mind. I'm going to go in a different direction for a little while, but I promise I will come back and it will make sense. I have a tendency to do these things. We have a lot of transitions coming up for our family this year. I don't know if it's that way for you, but not even counting like church life and work life, just in our family. Our oldest son, in a couple of months, he and his wife will become parents when little Allison makes her grand debut. And then a couple of months after that, our youngest daughter will graduate from college. And then a couple of months from that, our youngest son will enter high school. And somewhere in the middle of all that, I don't think they have a date yet, our middle son will get married. So you can imagine, quite the year for us. It's probably going to be a lot of photo opportunities. Guess who's on a diet? <laughs> but anyway, I've I been thinking about weddings and proposals and all that for obvious reasons. And I've been struck by something, I don't know if you find it as ironic as I do, but as far as I can tell, never in the history of the United States has marriage been less necessary, the actual ceremony. I mean, you can live together without getting married, you can have kids without getting married, you can buy property together without getting married, and if you stay living together long enough, you can even have a divorce without getting married. That's where a court decides who owns what. I'm not saying that's right, I'm just saying... As far as the necessity to get married to do these things, it's really not there anymore. In fact, more couples live together before they have a wedding ceremony than those who wait until after the wedding ceremony to get married. 
And yet, here's the ironic part. I don't think there's ever been as much money and time and effort spent on weddings <laughs> as there are now. Does anybody have a clue what the average couple spends on a wedding? I'm not talking engagement ring. I'm not talking honeymoon. <laughs> Eddie, I want to hang out with your friends. <laughs> I'll go to those receptions. <laughs> You're right on the nose. Between fifteen dollars and $25,000 was the average cost of a wedding last year in America, not counting the ring, not counting the honeymoon. And when I was looking online for some videos to show you, you know, proposals have gotten fancier and fancier and fancier. I feel sorry for guys nowadays. It's like you can't just say, hey, honey, you know. One guy hired a team of professional dancers so that as he and his girlfriend were walking through the park, there were these dancers she didn't know about who all of a sudden broke out into a flash mob doing this dance to this song. And then he proposed, of course, with a video camera crew catching the whole thing. I have no idea how much that costs, but yeah. Okay, I want to show you a little video of some highlights from a wedding. It's not anybody we know. Um, unless you follow Broadway, the guy's an award-winning composer, the groom, in, on Broadway. But this is just little highlights of their wedding, and I want you to think about how much money and how much time must have gone into the dresses, the flowers, the food, you know, just everything. And I'm not knocking them for wanting a beautiful wedding. That's not the point. But just think about how much effort went into this. So think about how long that must have taken to get all that together how long the choir practiced. Her dress alone probably cost more than I've spent on some cars. I'm just guessing. And think about that figure, fifteen dollars to $25,000 for an average wedding. How many people do you know that spend fifteen dollars to $25,000 preparing for the marriage? You know, premarital counseling, retreats, spend a year focusing on this. Maybe some do. It's a thought. I, I wonder about our focus when we focus so much on this big ceremony but not on preparing for a lifetime together and all the people that that's going to affect. And, and I wonder about our focus, too, when it comes to Christianity. Because it seems to me that I hear a lot about accepting the proposal, accepting salvation. And it's like, okay, that's it. That's the most important thing. person's going to heaven, and, and that's a good thing. Don't, don't get me wrong. But there's still this life. And I was picturing myself talking to a little kid and saying, hey, I have really good news for you. There's somebody that you haven't met that loves you so much. He sold everything he had. He sold his house, his business, his clothes, his car. He sold everything, and, and he got a million dollars for it, and he spent that whole million dollars on getting you a ticket to Disney World. And this is a really cool ticket because it's like an eternal season pass. You can go as much as you want forever and ride all the rides and stay at the hotels and eat at the restaurants. I mean, this is great. Isn't this great? But, but there's one catch. You, you can't use it until you're 85. 
and the kid's thinking, okay, Disney, sounds really good, but I'm five. I want to have fun now. I, I, don't, I don't know how much 85 is, but that's, that's a long time. And, and, you know, that's not so exciting. And so I would say, well, you can't be ungrateful. This person that loves you sold everything, a million dollars, to get you this ticket. You need to be, like, really happy about it. In fact, in fact you ought to be singing you're so happy. Let's, let's sing a song about it. Come on, you can sing with me. We've written lots of songs about this. One glad morning when I'm 85, I'll go to Disney. To a land on God's celestial playground, I'm going to Disney. I'm going to Disney, oh glory. I'm going to Disney in the morning when I'm 85, hallelujah, by and by. I'm going to Disney. Is it any wonder people sometimes just don't get it? Jesus did talk about heaven. He did talk about hell. But that was such a small part of his message. His invitation wasn't just, hey, go spend eternity with me. His invitation started immediately. Here's his mission statement. He read it out of Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. There's your gospel. Good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, freedom to prisoners. Not a word about heaven or hell. Liberty, freedom, bind up the brokenhearted. And then, a little bit later, Matthew chapter 11, his cousin John was locked up in prison. And I wonder what was going on through John's mind, since he had announced Jesus as the powerful Messiah King that that they'd been waiting for. And yet here he is, stuck in prison, waiting to get his head chopped off, you know. And he sends some of his friends to ask Jesus, Are you the one that we're waiting for, or or we need to wait for somebody else? I'm going to read this out of the message. Um, If you're not familiar with the Message Bible, it was written by a guy who was ministering to homeless people. And he found that while some homeless people could really connect with the great Lord, thy knowest our hearts, you know, in that kind of language, most people couldn't. So he, he tried to simplify the language. And... Talking about John, he says he sent his own disciples to ask, are you the one we've been expecting or are we still waiting? Jesus told them, go back and tell John what's going on. The blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. The wretched of the earth learn that God is on their side. And if you've never felt like the wretched of the earth, then you're probably pretty young still. Is that what you were expecting? Then count yourselves most blessed. Again, nothing about afterwards in heaven, but right now, the lame are healed, the blind see. He's announcing the good news of the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven invading earth. There is the gospel of salvation. There's also the gospel of the kingdom. And that's what Jesus spent most of his time talking about. 
and you don't have to wait till you're 85 and you die. It starts already, and to me, that's the greatest adventure. That's the greatest invitation I've ever had in my life. Somebody asked a pastor to explain the gospel in a Twitter message. That's 140 characters, about 20, 30 words. They really put him on the spot. I mean, he did his best, but, you know. Then he thought about it, and he came up with this. The gospel is the counterintuitive, joyous, exuberant news that Jesus has brought the unending, limitless, stunning love of God to even us. That's Rob Bell, pastor of Mars Hills Bible Church. And I found something a theologian said about what the gospel is not. This is Michael Horton from Westminster Seminary in California. The gospel is not good instructions, not a good idea, not good advice. The gospel is an announcement of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. I like that. Here's how, feel free to agree. Feel free to disagree privately later. (laughs) After you pray about it really hard and repent. Eugene Peterson, the guy who wrote the message, said, muckraking is not gospel work. Muckraking is digging up dirt on people. I had to look it up because I didn't know where the word came from, and there was actually a tool called a muckrake. It's what you use to clean up animal dung. Muckraking is not gospel work. Witch hunting is not gospel work. Shaming the outcast is not gospel work. Forgiving sin is gospel work. So think about that whenever you forgive somebody who's been unfair to you or spoken badly about you or lied about you or cheated you out of something. You're doing the work of the gospel. Saw an awesome example of this in the last week. If you've watched the news at all online or on TV, you're probably familiar with Ted Williams the homeless man with the golden voice. I'll give you a little of the backstory you may not have heard. He, uh, this guy does have a beautiful voice, and he used it in radio and was getting some success when he got caught up in the lifestyle, the groupies and the drugs and all that. And he left his wife with five kids to raise. Two of them were her daughters from a previous relationship. Two of them were their daughters, and then one other kid that he had with somebody somewhere when she's raising a woman's a saint. And so he leaves her for another woman, never pays any money in child support, never helps with the kids at all. He's an addict, you know, and he ends up homeless. And she has some anger, but eventually she forgives him, goes on with her life, remarries. Well, a couple of weeks ago, on Sunday, she and her husband are in church, And the pastor's talking about how God is the God of second chances. And he asked the congregation to think about who is someone in your life that needs a second chance, and are you willing to pray for them? And she and her husband looked at each other and said, Ted. Now, she'd already forgiven him, which is the first step, but now they prayed for him to have a second chance. Okay, that's Sunday. The next day would be Monday. There's a reporter with the local newspaper who's having a hard time figuring what to put up on the website because it's a real slow news day. 
and he remembers a video he took like six to eight weeks earlier of a homeless guy with a sign that says, I've got this God-given gift of a voice, and he interviewed him a little bit. And he hadn't posted it because he didn't think it was good enough. It didn't have a real sharp ending. And, but here he is. It's late Monday. He doesn't have anything else, so what the heck? He puts it up on YouTube. Tuesday, it gets a few hits. Wednesday, it goes viral. Now it's, what, a week and a half later, it's been seen by over 21 million people. And that's just on YouTube, not counting on TV and all that. And the guy's gotten job offers. Fortunately, Dr. Phil showed up, and he's now in rehab. Not Dr. Phil, but Ted Williams. <laughs> and so pray for him that, because he, he says he found God in the last couple of years and, and that he's trying to get clean. Pray for him that that will really take because he does have a second chance at life, not just professionally, but with his family and everything. But I was struck that on Sunday, his ex-wife was praying for him to have a second chance. And on Monday, this happened. Maybe it's a coincidence. Maybe not. As you go home, you might think about, is there anyone that you need to forgive or forgive again? Is there anyone that maybe you should pray for them to have a second chance? I mean... Prayer makes a difference. It really does. So forgiving sin is gospel work. Evangelism, sharing the good news with people, that's gospel work. Liberation, setting the captives free, helping people be free of diseases, addiction, loneliness, lies. Lies the big one for me. We believe a lot of lies about ourselves and about life, and it's really cool to see someone realize that they're not held back by that anymore. But I have a disclaimer. This adventure with Jesus, it's not all sunshine and rainbows. It's an adventure. And so if you've ever been camping or hiking or any kind of adventure like that, there's going to be some struggles, maybe even some injuries. That's part of what makes it an adventure. And we're going to look and talk more about the adventure next week. I'm not going to talk about the fast a whole lot today, but... I want to look at Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, which is where the Philippians lived. He'd only been there once before, as far as I can tell, just for a short period of time, a few years before. And as usual, Paul gets to town, Paul gets beaten and thrown in jail. He's just real good at that, and that's what had happened to him there. And now, when Paul's writing, he's in jail again. But the letter is full of joy. That's what I love about it, his perspective on things. And so you might think that, okay, if he's so happy, then, well, things aren't better for him. He's in jail, but maybe things are better for the church. Are any of you familiar with the Philippian church and what they were known for back then? A couple of characteristics. What do you think of when you think of Haiti? Poverty, suffering, those are the two things the Philippian church was known for, great poverty and suffering. That's the church he's talking to, and yet this whole letter is full of joy. And, you know, he's, he's sitting there in prison knowing he's going to get out one of two ways. Either he's going to be set free or he's going to be executed. And he doesn't know which, and it's been four years. Now, I happen to hate an unanswered question for four minutes, I can't imagine four years of this. And yet he uses the word joy, which means rejoicing exceedingly over and over again. 
And, and yes, I did prepare this before reading Joy's blog post of this week. But if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. I'm going to read, read parts of it to you. I don't have it on the screen because originally this was read to people, and they listened to it, and it's not a whole lot. Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 9, this is from the message. He's telling them, so this is my prayer, that your love will flourish and that you will not only love much but well. Learn to love appropriately. You need to use your head and test your feelings so that your love is sincere and intelligent, not sentimental mush. Like a lover's li- Live a lover's life, circumspect and exemplary, a life Jesus will be proud of. This is the invitation to live a lover's life that Jesus will be proud of. Bountiful in fruits from the soul, making Jesus attractive to all, getting everyone involved in the glory and praise of God. And I wonder, when people look at my life, let's assume they know I'm a Christian, I've got the big cross and the bumper stickers and whatever else, right? Is Jesus Christ attractive? From looking at my life, is Jesus Christ attractive? Some of the people I hear talking about Jesus aren't so attractive. And I don't mean physically, I mean the message. I want to tell you about a lady named Mary Virginia Merrick. She was born right after the Civil War, so about 150 years ago. And so she grew up in Washington, D.C., the daughter of a wealthy family. And I imagine that in that circumstance, being a 15-year-old girl... The war's over. You don't have to worry about a whole lot because your family's doing pretty well. What would she have been daydreaming about? Maybe fancy balls and ball gowns and some handsome guy from another wealthy Washington family coming to sweep her away so they could build their own beautiful home and raise their own beautiful children. Those are the kind of things 15-year-old girls dream about. Well, there was one slight hitch. When she was 16, she fell and broke her back, and for the rest of her life, she was paralyzed and in constant pain, chronic pain. So there goes all the ball gowns and probably no handsome prince coming on a valiant steed to take her away. And if I told you that she lived to an old age and died a very bitter, broken old woman because God had let this happen to her and ruined her life. I think you could have some sympathy for that. Here's some of what she said in her autobiography. I was always in bed or on the sofa, but I learned to sew and write in this recumbent position. I suffered constantly, but I made a resolution never to speak of my health. And then the blow fell. I learned that I would never run with my sisters. And there stretched before me long years of helplessness that had always been harder to bear than suffering. I never doubted the love of the Father, but my spirit rebelled at the thought that I would be useless in his vineyard. This is a 16-year-old girl who's more upset about not being useful to God than she is about being in pain for the rest of her life and being paralyzed and crippled. I strove to serve as best I could, I resolved to do something every day for the Christ child. That's how she referred to Jesus. So she learns how to sew lying down, even though she's in pain. 
And she starts making little baby clothes for poor families in her city. And not only that, but she gets her friends to start doing it too. I've done a lot of work for different nonprofits, charities, and I'm thinking, you know, it would be so much easier to recruit people if you're paralyzed in pain and you're doing something. Who's going to give you the excuse, I'm too busy, I'm too busy, right? I'm too tired. Not only that, what she was dealing with, but when she was 19, both of her parents died within a few months of each other, so she's left to raise her six younger siblings, which is a nice Catholic family. She's crippled, she's in pain, she's raising six younger kids, and she's still resolved to do something every day for Jesus. That was her promise. So at 21, I mean, she's been doing this charity work for a while, at 21, she's got enough friends helping her that she starts a nonprofit. She incorporates the Christ Child Society. Now, it's been 50 years since she died. There are 43 chapters around the United States where thousands of volunteers still are, are helping poor families for Jesus. I think that's a life Jesus would be proud of. Not just with the numbers, but because of her heart. She had every excuse to say, oh, well, you know, poor me, I can just barely survive. But she didn't. She said, I'm going to do something for Jesus every day. And after I read some of her story, I'm on a break from school, so I actually get to read something that's not teaching-related. I was reading the autobiography of St. Therese, not St. Teresa of Avila, who was the, in the Middle Ages the mystic, but St. Therese from France lived in the late 1800s, died at 24, was known as the Little Flower of Jesus. If you go downtown, there's the Shrine of the Little Flower. That's who they're talking about. And I was interested in her partly because the church that I grew up in was the Church of the Little Flower. And it's fascinating to see her writing and her attitude of, I'm so in love with Jesus, what can I give him? If you haven't been in love, then you've probably been a little kid and you, well, you want to give your parents something, a drawing, you know, a coloring, something. And she wants to give Jesus something, but all power for God. What do you give all power for God? I mean, you kind of got everything he needs. Well, you give him you. And so she looks for ways to sacrifice for him. She's living in a convent. And if you... Have ever had any trouble getting along with people in the church or in a community group? And it's, you really don't look forward to seeing them once a week or twice a week. Imagine living with them 24-7, living and working with them. So she would take the nun or novice that pushed her buttons the most, that really irritated her, and she would go and love that person and give them the biggest smile and help them with their work and find ways to be loving and kind to them as her sacrifice for Jesus. She died young because she was taking care of sick people, and when you're taking care of people with tuberculosis and stuff back in those days, the odds of you catching it are pretty high, and she kind of knew that. I'm not suggesting we all need to die for Jesus, but might be willing. Let's go back to Paul. This is still in Philippians, and he's talking about what it's been like for him in jail. And there's been all this politics with other Christians putting him down and wanting to take his place and the kind of things people do. 
He says, I want to report to you, friends, that my imprisonment here has had the opposite of its intended effect. Instead of being squelched, the message has actually prospered. All the soldiers here, and everyone else too, found out that I'm in jail because of this Messiah. That piqued their curiosity, and now they've learned all about him. He talks some more, and then he says, Through your faithful prayers and the generous response of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, everything he wants to do in and through me will be done. I can hardly wait to continue on my course. I don't expect to be embarrassed in the least. On the contrary, everything happening to me in this jail only serves to make Christ more accurately known, regardless of whether I live or die. They didn't shut me up. They gave me a pulpit. And sometimes when we're reading the Bible, it's easy to think these are things that happened back then. Okay, okay, yeah, that's Paul. It's Paul, right? I'm not going to be preaching the gospel in jail. We have a friend who pastors a church in town. Not only pastors the church, but they also have a Christian school. They have a ministry to people who are coming out of jail and trying to re-enter society, which is a pretty hard thing to do. And a ministry for... Um, Troubled Teenagers, where they do like a boot camp in the summer. And you may have heard about this in the news. A couple of years ago, one of the kids in the boot camp accused him of having crossed the line between discipline and actual physical abuse. And so he was arrested and thrown in jail. He and one of the camp counselors. And they could have bailed him out of jail pretty quickly, but he said, no, use the money to get the counselor out. And let's wait until we can get the money together to, to bond me out. And because he was a friend of the family from way back, you know, people can surprise you. I mean, I, I didn't say it was impossible that he could have done what he was accused of because I know better things happen, but I doubted it. And I had the chance to go and sit through his trial in Corpus Christi and listen to all the testimony so that I could report back to his church here in San Antonio because the media doesn't necessarily do a full and balanced accounting of such things. And the charges were dismissed. In fact, they really didn't even have enough to charge him with a felony, even if what the girl had been saying was true, which it wasn't. So that didn't go anywhere. But he had the opportunity to be in jail. And something that was fascinating, maybe it was a coincidence, but I doubt it, he's African-American. At the Nueces County Jail, there's a cell where they put African-Americans, another cell where they put whites and Hispanics, who tend to stay separate. They put him in the white and Hispanic cell. And somebody warned him about it. They said, dude, if they didn't put you with the other blacks, somebody's got it in for you. Fortunately, besides the Spirit of God, he's got a military background and he could hold his own. And he ended up preaching several sermons. They would get up for breakfast at 5.30 in the morning, and they would say, oh, great, preach or preach. Now, he didn't have his concordance and his computer and all that. He basically had to preach off the top of his head, but he had, you know, plenty of training. And so it was just like Paul. They gave him a pulpit to talk to people that never would have walked into his church. That's the adventure. Here's what... Paul goes on to say, he tells him, I expect that I'll get out at some point and be able to join you again because I want to keep working with you Philippians. Otherwise, I'd really like to go to heaven, but I think I better stay because I want to keep working. 
but until we get together, meanwhile, live in such a way that you are a credit to the message of Christ. Let nothing in your conduct hang on whether I come or not. Your conduct must be the same whether I show up to see things for myself or hear of it from a distance. Stand united, singular in vision, contending for people's trust in the message, the good news, not flinching or dodging in the slightest before the opposition. And here you start to see that the invitation isn't just for me as an individual. It's for me as part of a church. Stand united. I can't stand united with myself. Actually, I argue with myself. Stand united, singular in vision, contending for people's trust in the message. There's far more to this life than trusting in Christ. There's also suffering for him. And the suffering is as much a gift as the trusting. I think if you've been through dicey circumstances where you're saying, okay, God, I trust you. I'm going to trust you. I have no idea how this is going to work out, but I trust you. You realize you're giving him a gift of your trust and your faith. And he's saying, yes, that's a gift, but there's another gift you can give him, and that's to be willing to go through the struggling. The suffering is as much a gift as the trusting. You're involved in the same kind of struggle you saw me go through, on which you are now getting an updated report in this letter. He says something very similar to the Thessalonians. He talks about how when the Thessalonians saw the way he and his friends lived, that gave them the strength to face life as well. He says, although great trouble accompanied the word, you were able to take great joy from the Holy Spirit, taking the trouble with the joy, the joy with the trouble. That's the adventure, trouble and joy, suffering and faith. It all, it all goes together. We have such a culture of wanting comfort and wanting safety. And the most miserable people I know are the ones that have worked the hardest to create their own little cocoon. And they wonder why they're still unhappy. Well, it's because we weren't designed to live in a cocoon. Right? We were designed to be with others. And yeah, it doesn't always feel good. Okay, the party's for after I'm 85. I think we're going to be really surprised when we get to heaven. We get little glimpses of it in the Bible, but he doesn't tell us a whole lot. I think that's because God loves surprises. I think there's going to be a lot of humor and music and fun in heaven. And I've got another video. This one's of the reception from that same wedding. And I want to show it to you because the bridegroom decided to surprise the bride, which sounds like Jesus. And he did it using a song from one of my favorite songs from one of my favorite musicals that had a big impact on me from the time I was in middle school. It has a very Jewish philosophy. It says, God would like us to be joyful even when our hearts lay panting on the floor. How much more can we be joyful when there's really something to be joyful for? I've carried that with me. God wants me to be joyful regardless of my circumstances. That must mean that I am not subject to my circumstances. And then when something good is happening, my nature is to say, yeah, okay, well, how long will this last? When's the other shoe going to drop? You know, I'm a pessimist that way. It's how I protect myself. And I had to learn, no, if there's something good happening, be joyful about it. Go ahead and enjoy it. Go and say, ahead and say good things. When something bad comes, deal with that then. But it's okay to be joyful now. I had to learn that.
the groom doesn't do this alone. He enlists the help of his father and her father. Now, I told you he's a Broadway dude, but the family isn't. The dads aren't. And so they spring this surprise on the bride. And I think it's a lot like the surprise Jesus is going to spring on his bride. Go ahead. My dad never would have done something like that. I thought that was pretty cool. Or my husband, this, well, you never know. You know, the spirit hits him just right, you know. It's an idea, though. I mean, you know, whoever renew our vows or something. Yeah. No, I don't think so. Hey, maybe. They are going to have dancing, so. He, the bridegroom, could not have done that on his own. That song was not written to be sung by one person. I mean, he could have tried, but it, it would not have been the effect. And that's what this adventure with Jesus is like. You have a particular part of the song that I can't sing. I need your voice next to mine. That's why we do things as a group. That's why we're going to be doing this corporate fast as a group, specifically to find out what's our individual part. How did God create me and design me to play a very unique role that nobody else can do in this life? I was going to bring those little plastic champagne cups and some sparkling cider so we could all toast, because after this, it was like, I need something to toast, but that would have been pretty messy. But I'm going to propose to toast anyway. Let this be the year when we stop seeking safety and comfort and instead trust God enough to embrace growth. Even though growth means struggling and suffering, let this be the year when our joy is not determined by our circumstances, but by our relationship with God. Let this be the year when our self-esteem has nothing to do with what people think about us or how they treat us. Let this be the year when we feel good about our lives and ourselves because we are the chosen life partners of God, God Almighty. Let this be the year when we live lives Jesus will be proud of, not because of our accomplishments, but because of our joy and the joy we bring to others. I hope you'll come back next week to find out how. Does anybody have any special ideas for ministry time? If not, then go live this great adventure. And if you need some prayer for any particular area of your life where there's some struggles, we'll have some people here near the front that would be thrilled to pray with you. That's part of the adventure, too. Thank you. Oh, one more thing. After Clara's done, feel free to go. Uh, you stated about four things. Let this be the year where blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. And I was trying to write as fast as I could. Mm-hmm. And I didn't get them all. But I just kind of, did anybody get touched by any of those? Did you feel like, oh, yes, I want that. Anybody? Okay, so if you're uh, anybody <laughs> and you feel touched, I want her to read it again. Okay. And if that one that she read is for you, then I want you to stand for that one. Stay standing. And then she's going to read the next one. If that one's for you, stand for that one. Because we're just going to make an agreement uh, to that. Does that make sense? Was that clear? Questions?
Okay, so read again. I, I'm standing for, I'm going to stand for most of them. But okay. Yeah. So. Let this be the year when we stop seeking safety and comfort and instead trust God enough to embrace growth, even though growth includes struggling and suffering. Just pause. I'm going to pray that over them. Here's that first one. Lord, we desire to no longer be people who are constantly seeking to be safe and comfortable, making sure our life is all just fine, and lacking to trust you, lacking to say, okay, I want to embrace growth. Even though that means I have to struggle, and even that means there may be suffering, I choose to trust you, God, and to embrace the growth you have for me. Let this be the year when our joy is not determined by our circumstances, but by our relationship with God. Lord, I ask that as we go through life, your spirit would rise up within us, that when the enemy tries to magnify every little problem we have and even the big problems, Lord, that your spirit would rise up and say, but there's something bigger. And God is with me. And God has plans for me, for good, not for evil. I have a future and I have a hope. Lord, I ask that that spirit would rise up in the most unexpected times and that we would recognize it as being you and that we would yield to it and have that joy and experience that joy. Let this be the year when our self-esteem has nothing to do with what people think of us or how people treat us. Let this be the year when we feel good about ourselves and our lives because we are the chosen life partners of Almighty God. In Jesus' name, I just break the curse and the lie that are over those, Father, who, whose life has been shaped by what they think people think about them and what people think about them and how people treat them. We break that curse now in Jesus' name. Your basis, your foundation is based on what Almighty God believes of you. He has chosen you to be his life partner. Let this be the year when we live lives Jesus will be proud of, not because of our accomplishments, but because of our joy and the joy we bring to others. Lord, I ask that you would shine a bright spotlight on the people in our lives that we can bring joy or hope or comfort to. Lord, show us those little moments where we can make a sacrifice for you and let us have joy in that. And Lord, right now we lay down at your altar every idea we've had that an accomplishment would make you proud, that an accomplishment would give us worth. We surrender those to you, Lord, as our sacrifice this morning. Related to living a life that Jesus would be proud of, 
I just wanted to share briefly. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote uh, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, the following, that if we are but willing to walk, God is pleased with our stumbling. And so it's not about not making mistakes. It's not about not falling. It's not how many times you fall, but how many times you get up. And, some, and it's okay to ask for a hand up sometimes if, if that's what you need. All right, the Lord bless you and fill you with truth and freedom and his love. Amen. I'm looking forward to next week, Mariana. Yeah.